Well, we're going to dive into the scripture this morning. Uh, good morning. If it's, if it's your first time this morning, we just want to say welcome. My name is T.D. Davis. My wife, Callie, who was up here earlier, uh, and I, we are, have the privilege of leading this amazing church called Ponca City Church, and we're just so honored that you chose to just kind of share your Sunday with us. But we've been into a series uh, recently, if this is your first time, called Expansion. And um, the subtitle of this series is Reaching Out to People Who Are Different Than You. How many of you guys know that as human beings, as a family, as people that come together, not everybody just agrees with everybody. Like, we're not robots who just everybody's like one happy family. Uh, but conflict is bound to happen, and people are different. And here's what I know as I read the Bible, and especially as I read about the early church, is God was wanting to expand his message to the world, this message that God was spreading his goodness simply because of what Jesus had done for us on the cross. And he didn't just end there by just dying for our sin and giving us salvation, but he rose again in power and has empowered his church to spread this good news and this, this message to the world. God is all about expanding the goodness of God around the globe, around this world that he loves so much. And it just so happened that his chosen vehicle to do that happens to be imperfect people, also known as this community called the church. Um, I want to remind you that church isn't something that we necessarily attend, but we are the church. The church is a group of people, right? The church is on the move. The church is empowered by God to spread that goodness in a practical way, to transform communities, to transform the world that we live in. And we have this character that we've been looking at in this series in particular, but, and this guy, is, his name is Stephen. And Stephen was kind of one of these like early guys in the church who really believed that what God was wanting to expand went outside this nation of Israel, God's nation, right? This, this nation that God had empowered, and we read about in the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, we read about all these stories of the people of Israel, God's people, right? And Stephen was starting to catch on based on what Jesus was doing and what, based on what Jesus did. He was the first one who was kind of like understanding, like, God wants this to break out of just a national identity, like, God wants this message to go beyond just this, like, one particular nation. But it's interesting because I just want to kind of give us a recap of last week. We looked at four, uh, what I would say are some key symbols for, for Jews, for Judaism during this time. If you were a Jew, if you were a, 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 an Israelite, if you were considered racially one of the ones that is God's promised and chosen people, there were four key symbols that you just really didn't jack with, right? You don't mess with these. Number one, the temple. Um, you don't mess with the temple. This is like God's place where he's chosen to reside. And then we have the law or the Torah, which is basically the Old Testament in our current Bible today. This was the law that God had distributed to his people of what it meant to follow and stay faithful uh, to him. Then the Holy Land, which was really focused on Jerusalem, right? This, this geography, this practical geography of where the people of God were promised that they would inhabit, right? And then there's the, the other symbol that's kind of key is the national ethnic identity, Basically, those people who were Jewish by race or those who converted by seeing God work in a miraculous way throughout history and saying, I want in on what that God is doing and what that God is up to. But when it came to tradition, you didn't mess with these four symbols. And we have Stephen, this character, who's wanting to talk about expanding God's message. And people had an issue with it because these four key symbols had a lot to do with geography had a lot to do with the land, had a lot to do with this heart tug and this marriage that these people felt with this specific geography and this destination that God had promised. Now that they kind of resided there, this idea of expanding it beyond their geography was hard to embrace. 
And to a point where people were like, well, this guy, Jesus, this message of Jesus, obviously he wants to destroy all of these things that we have grown to love. That's a part of our identity. And God is beginning to push those things outward. So people felt really threatened by that. And Stephen, as this guy who's like all about it, he's like, God wants to spread this beyond just this national ethnic identity. He wants to break those borders. He wants his goodness to spread beyond this specific nation, this specific race. He wants those walls to be broken down. This was such an accusation, such a huge accusation, that it was uh, the death penalty was basically what we were talking about here. He was being accused to a level that they're like, hey, if this is true, those accusations that have come against him, this dude deserves death. Like, that's what we're talking about right now. So this is what Stephen was up against, possibly the death penalty. And I titled this message specifically this morning by this title, Zoom Out. Zoom out. Because how many of you guys know that you get a completely different perspective when you begin to zoom out when it comes to things? I, I'll never forget the first time I rode or I went on a plane ride, you know, it, like as a kid or whatever. It's like mind-blowing, right? You like see this viewpoint that you've never seen before up in a plane, right? You, you start to like kind of ascend into the sky and you start to see what life looks like a little bit above the clouds, right? You start to gain a different perspective. You start to ask better questions when you see a bigger picture, if you ever watch one of those, like, mind-blowing shows on, like, sci-fi or whatever about, like, space and, and, like, earth and, like, the universe, like, you start, you watch something like that and you start asking, like, different questions. Like, I, I used to care, like, what I was going to eat for the next meal and now you're like, hey, like, what's my point in the universe, right? Like, these are questions that each and every one of us as a human being we have to ask. We have to beg to ask, like, what's my purpose here on earth? But the point is when you zoom out, when you get above the clouds, when you see a different perspective, you start asking better questions, you start living with the right perspective. You start to live with a lens over your life that really portrays what God sees. And I'll tell you, God sees a world that he loves so much. God has created the universe. It is his handiwork, right? We see a God who is a creator who loves his creation so much. And we begin to join in with those things when we take a perspective and we truly zoom out. But here's what's happening in this little narrative we're looking at with Stephen who's being accused. Is that there's these Jewish people that are so zoomed in. They're zoomed in to the little minute details of this man and what he was saying, zooming into his faults, zooming into this mini micro perspective in the midst of a world that was broken, in the midst of a world that was yearning for hope, in the midst of a world where people were being oppressed because of the, the Roman government at the time, people that were being shoved to the fringes, and Jesus dies, and he sets the record straight. He becomes the great equalizer when it comes to society, and Stephen realizes, man, this message needs to spread to the whole world. But meanwhile, we have these Jewish religious people that are zooming into the details, zooming into Stephen and saying, that can't be. God could, surely couldn't be doing this. They're accusing him specifically that he's speaking against the temple and the law, saying that things are going to expand, right? They're accusing him of saying that Jesus would destroy this temple and change the customs which Moses, a hero of the faith, had given them, which we know based on based on Stephen's perspective, wasn't true at all. What Stephen wanted to do right here is he wanted to zoom out. He wanted to zoom out for a second and say, hey, wait a second. We understand that Jesus isn't saying these things are going to go away, right? He's just saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's heart in a world. Jesus is the solution to the big picture of life. Jesus is the solution to not to zoom in and pick apart what's wrong with other people, but let's zoom out and understand how each and every one of us in this earth has a purpose. 
And God has designed us, designed it for that purpose, for us to engage in, in this life so that we may live an abundant life like God has promised. Stephen begins to zoom out and take a perspective of how each person plays a part. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 7 this morning. And we're, we're, we're basically at a part in the narrative where Stephen's up there. He's about to be accused. He could be facing the death penalty based on what they decide, right? And he's going to plead his case. So let's look at Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 1, 16 verses. We're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to get through it. You can follow along if you don't have your Bible up on the screen. And here's what it says. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Here's the accusations, right? Is this legit? Are, because this is a big deal. The stuff you're, you're saying, the stuff that you're coming against, this Jesus in whom you follow, who you're claiming as God. Verse 2, it says, to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Land, 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 land. Even though at the time, Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. Meanwhile, Abraham's like, I don't have a child. I don't have descendants. What's going on, right? Verse 7, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. This specific place, this land. We're seeing a theme here on the, the central location of the Jewish people, right? Once again. Verse 8, then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac. Boom, God is faithful. He has a child. And circumcised him eight days later after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob. So now we're going down the lineage a little bit. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was, a, was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their very first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Let's, let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you so much that, Lord, your perspective is something that we can never attain to because you're greater than us. But even in our human comprehension, our mind, we have the capability to zoom out. So, Lord, teach us today. Lord, we're, I'm so thankful how relevant your word is, your scripture. Teach us today the practicalities of the perspective that Stephen took in a situation where his life was on the very line. Lord, would we have the same perspective? Would we glean from this perspective? Would we learn from this? Would we understand how relevant this is today in a divisive culture, in a world that sometimes feel like it's falling apart? But, Lord, you've given us a part to play. We have a purpose. 
Lord, you have a plan for us. So, Lord, would we be obedient to, Lord, maybe what you're speaking and, and, and really just depositing in our hearts today. Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. amen. Okay, so this morning is what we're really going to do is that's a lot of, of Scripture, right? So we're really going to kind of break it down. And, and here's what Stephen's doing. And I mentioned this message this morning. It's called Zoom Out. He's zooming out really this morning by focusing on three key characters that we're going to look at this morning and kind of digest in bite-sized chunks, right? And um, it's interesting his approach here because what Stephen is actually doing as he's telling a story and he's, he's giving different characters and he's kind of understanding this, this kind of larger narrative and how we kind of fit into it is much like the audience would have understood. In fact, there's other areas of the Bible, a few just didn't mention, Nehemiah chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, Psalm 105 and 106, much of even the writings of Josephus, which, who was a Jewish historian, you can read about the writings of Josephus, if you go to the library, you can look it up, right, and understand and learn a lot about the history during biblical times. This was a method that was common for, throughout the scripture, of telling stories and understanding the grand scheme of what God was doing and how we fit into that very narrative. And here's what's so interesting is Stephen could have defended himself against these false things that people were claiming. His life was on the line, and he could have just got up there and said, no, it's not true, you know what I mean? Try to, like, just vouch for himself and be like, hey, you guys are accusing me of things and you, just, you don't understand, right? Defense, defense, defense. He could have so easily got in defensive mode, but he doesn't. He, he zooms out a little bit. He contextualizes to the audience, right? And he wants to be a witness to the big picture. So let's look at these three characters this morning. We're going to break this down piece by piece. Acts chapter 7, starting with verses 1 through 2. So let's look back at this. It says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Boom. First character... We say, oh, Abraham. No, no. First character he just gets off right off the bat is the God of glory. Let's just make sure we're talking about the same God here because this was a very pagan culture. There was different, there was multiple gods. A lot of people would have looked at Stephen and said, you're following some sort of pagan cult or religion that is popularized in today. This was common, right? So I love it. First thing Stephen does is he zooms out as he gives this title to God, the God of glory. You know how many other times this title is used in the scripture? One. Very specific, deep in the Psalms. One time is this title used. So basically, he's going deep, has done his homework into this Jewish culture and said, hey, let's just get on the same page here. Make sure we're talking about the same God. Let me use this specific title to describe. So make no mistake about it. We're talking about the same God of glory. The first character in this large narrative, so you understand, as we zoom out and understand how you fit in, is the God of glory. And here's what's so interesting. Once again, he has a chance, chance to defend himself, but he responds differently. You would have assumed if you read this without understanding what was about to happen next, you're like, dude, Stephen, come on, defend yourself. Stand up for yourself. But it's interesting, he doesn't. And the author, Luke, who's the author of the Gospel of Luke and its sequel, Acts, is what we're looking at this morning, he's zoning into this response. He wants us as the reader to understand that there's a different posture being taken, right? If we can glean something, the author, Luke, is doing something so specific for us to understand that this isn't a guy standing up to defend himself. But he allows his writing to really illustrate this big defense that Stephen's trying to accomplish as he zooms out, as his life is on the line, as he's being accused. Stephen is about to give the longest speech that we see in the book of Acts. This is the longest one we're about to come upon. And this morning, we're just looking at how he's setting the stage, so we have to pay attention. How is he telling the story? 
First, number one, it allows God to be the first character. And understanding God is number one. But then as you see in the scripture, it shows that it transitions into this second character, Abraham. He mentions Abraham. So let's, let's look at Abraham and let's look at Acts chapter 7, verses 3 through 8, as it describes kind of the Abraham and, and kind of this, 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 this journey that Abraham goes on. It says, verse 3, leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land. Once again, there's, there's this land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even ground to set his foot on. It's like, come on, God, really, you're faithful? But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time Abraham had no child, God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place, right? Once again, land, land, place, a specific location. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. The second character that Stephen introduces is Abraham, this man in Jewish culture that's known as the father of the faith, right? The story of the Jewish people, the story of the nation of Israel began with this one man. He is the beginning. So I love it. What is Stephen doing? He's, he's trying to zoom out a little bit and understand. Once again, hey, let's zoom out. Let's understand that God is creator, but let's also understand Abraham, his story, his life a little bit. Let's break that down. And Abraham really was God's first step in a solution of how the world was supposed to be set right. Because we have this broken world, marred by sin, imperfect people. Right? Human, humans, humanity that welcomed sin into this world and now we're marred and cursed by the fact that we are not God ourselves. Although we are created in the image of God, the curse of sin has created a separation between us and God. And God, as he's wrestling through the first few chapters of the Bible, Genesis 3 through 11, we see a lot of mistakes. We see a lot of repetition. We see that people and humans keep falling into the same, same mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. And we get to Genesis chapter 12, and there's this guy, Abraham, that God kind of chooses. He's like, hey, you're going to be the one that I choose. Although you're imperfect, although you are not a robot, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to see that I am faithful. And through you, there will be descendants. Through you, there will be this nation. And they will take precedence in this land, and it will be this amazing land, this piece of geography that you're going to settle in, and I'm going to be glorified, right? Stephen's, Stephen is insisting on this character with a new identity that becomes Israel. But before it even got to Israel, before it became about the geography, before it became about the temple, there was this struggle of faith that existed. God was having to use this vehicle of human free will to get them to a place that had a national identity in that point in history. And it says that God makes this covenant, right, with Abraham. He's like, you're going to be an alien at first into this land I'm going to show you. So you're going to have to have faith, but then you're going to inherit it. It's going to be yours. You're not going in just owning the place, but you're going to understand that you're going to see me work because you're going to go in as a stranger, and then you're going to inherit this place to be your very own. You're going to see me. Watch, God says. Watch and see my glory. Watch and see my power. Watch and see how faithful I am. And we know that God did give that land. But we also know this. Not every generation experienced that promise. 
throughout the Old Testament, throughout this actual story, when you start digging into the biblical narrative, you realize there's a lot of gaps where people were unfaithful to God, where generations turned their back on God, where people didn't actually get to experience that very blessing or see that actually pan out. And we see that this land was not an end in itself, right? As we see this land being established, we see God's people establishing themselves, we see the temple being built, but we understand from this narrative right here and understanding what Stephen's describing is the whole point of this temple in the first place was for divine worship. It was for God to be worshipped, this faithful God who has proved himself throughout history. The temple is a place and a location where God is to be worshipped because he is faithful. And I love that the possession of this very land, the land, 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 came through Abraham's faithfulness to God and his obedience. He wasn't dependent on a temple. He wasn't dependent on all these cultural things. He had a raw relationship with God where God moved in history and he saw how faithful God was. So let's look at this really quick. Zoomed out. Let's zoom out for, let's ask a question this morning. How does God act with Abraham? The answer to that, based on what Stephen was saying, is he's personally faithful outside the promised land. God is not limited to a geography, but outside these institutions and these things that were a place that was dedicated for God to be glorified, God is glorified in the first place because he's faithful outside that location. Question, how does Abraham respond to this situation? How does he respond in this narrative that Stephen's showing? By being a faithful witness to God. He's following through. He's wrestling with God. You're going to make me descendants? I don't even have any kids. In fact, my wife, she's not able to have children. How is this going to happen? But God shows and proves himself time and time again, and miracles happen, and many descendants create this nation called Israel. But before it could even happen, come on, God's character was one that was faithful. It led them to this place where he was even able to be glorified because people saw him move and be faithful in the midst of human history and in the midst of a world that was so broken. So let's keep, let's keep moving on this morning. We, we move on to this next character that's introduced in the narrative. And first, Jacob's kind of introduced as this character, but, but Stephen zooms in on this other character named Joseph, right? So let's read this again. It says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. So you have this character, this son of Jacob, through the lineage of Abraham, who's rejected by his brothers. His brothers are jealous, and they, basically they pack him up and send him on to what we know as Egypt, right? And this kind of spurs on this whole narrative of, uh, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt and the Ten Commandments and Moses, all these things. But what, once again, where, where is Stephen focusing? He's focusing on this character, Joseph, because there's something we can glean from this. Let's think about this in light of Jesus, in light of what Jesus had done, in light of the fact that Jesus, once again, people were crying Hosanna as he entered in Jerusalem, and within a week, those same people murdered him brutally up on a cross. They actually decided themselves to be enemies against 
this man who claimed to be God because it offended so many of their traditions and deep-held roots. We see Joseph, a man who is what? Rejected by his brothers. But what does God use him to do? He becomes the ruler of all of Pharaoh's household and the whole land of Egypt. This character, Joseph, that reflects Jesus, this very one that, as we know, was rejected by those same people, rejected by the ones he actually came for. But what does God do? God promises and exalts him to the highest authority. The Bible says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in authority, in a position of ruling and reigning. Come on, somebody. It wasn't just about the cross, but how many of you guys know? The cross on Friday, Sunday morning, Jesus is glorified. He's in a position, in a place of authority where people, whether they wanted to give it to him or not, God did that and intervened in human history. So Stephen's picking apart this character Joseph that all these people would know, and he's saying, hey, look at this guy. He was despised by his brothers. Then he was placed in a position of authority. Sound familiar? Hey, wait a second. When his brothers needed food, Joseph, he's hanging out. He's got all the authority. There's a famine that hits. The man they had to go to was the man they had been jealous of, and so he had rejected. The Jewish people. What's Stephen saying? He's, he's going, guys, you're missing it. In order to actually re receive freedom, it's not going to be by this religious identity. It's to understand what God has done in this point in human history. The gap that has existed between God and man, Jesus has broken that gap, and now we can have right relationship with him, and it is a free gift. It is not something that we do with our own might. It's not something that we do ourselves up to accomplish, but it's something that God has done. Received the free gift, but it's very similar. These Jewish people, his audience that had rejected Jesus, but we see Joseph. What does he do? He's like, hey, you guys sent me away. You were jealous of me. But what do we read about Joseph? What's his, what, what posture does he take? He takes a posture of forgiveness. He's been exalted. And now rather than really getting what's coming to them because of what they did to him, he offers them forgiveness. Much like Jesus has done for us. And lastly, we see Joseph being outnumbered, overpowered by his brothers, but God being consistently faithful, fulfilling his promises and purposes. And we see during this time this early church, this group, ragtag group of people, right, outnumbered because of the Roman rule and reign, the way people were being oppressed. And what is God doing? He's allowing miracles to take place. As we've read up into the book of Acts at this point, God's power was being used through these very people. They were outnumbered, but they had God on their side, the God of the universe. The same power that conquered the grave now lives within these believers. There's so many parallels in the story of Joseph. And he's, he's telling his audience about this particular character because it parallels so much to the character of God and how God is consistent. So let's zoom out for a second, right? And let's ask these questions again. How does God act with this character, Joseph? The answer is he's personally faithful outside the promised land. We didn't talk about Jerusalem. We didn't talk about the temple. We talked about a faithful God in the midst of a mess of a life situation of Joseph, and he was faithful. He was faithful in the midst of the mess, and he proved himself to be true time and time again. The zoomed-out perspective on God is that he is faithful throughout human history. The question that we ask next, how does Joseph respond to this situation? What was Joseph's response to this faithful God? He wasn't perfect, but guess what? 
He was faithful, and he was a faithful witness to God to show, look what God has done. Jesus was nowhere in the picture yet, you guys. Jesus had not come through the form of a virgin, right? Became man. We're not talking about Jesus. We're talking about the forgiveness of God, his consistent, faithful character from Genesis to Revelation that comes to a culmination when finally Jesus comes in the flesh. But we see a God from Genesis to Revelation who's consistent and consistently loves and cares for his people and is faithful to be trusted and is true and has proven himself time and time again. And Stephen's zooming out and say, do you see this God? Do you see this God? Are you identifying with this God and seeing how you fit into this larger picture? And then I love it. The last two verses, we, we, we could miss this, but we're, we're not going to this morning. He finishes off this little section before he continues on because he's just, he just setting the stage. We're just looking at how he's setting the stage this morning for this speech that he's going to give. It says, then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So we got Abraham again. We got Joseph being referred to that we know in other parts of the Bible. This is, in fact, the location of where he was buried. It's almost like, like Stephen's landing the plane, putting a nice little bow on his like, entry point in this whole argument he's about to give and saying, look what I've done. But it's like, well, what does this mean? What we need to understand is that Shechem, when it came to people during this time, Jewish people, they understood that everything was about the centrality of Jerusalem. The geography meant so much. We've seen that time and time again throughout this section of Scripture. Land, this place, this emphasis that Stephen's trying to bring emphasis to understand. Okay, let's put emphasis on this land, but let's also understand how God works outside of these things, that, these, the, the hill that we're kind of dying on right now, right? And during this time, there was people known as Samaritans, who was basically a different sect of Judaism that had different beliefs. And Jews and Samaritans were always at odds with where the temple was supposed to be, where, where it was supposed to be built, right? And what's interesting is for burial, proper burial, most people were like, hey, our patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, the people that have gone down the lineage to see how God's been faithful, we're going to make sure and bury them in the right geography. We're going to bury them in Jerusalem. But we see here, when it comes to Joseph, of who we know of, that Joseph and some of the other descendants, they were not buried in this idealistic kind of thought process of everybody needs to be buried there. And I love it because what, what Stephen's doing is he's like, hey, there's all these ideals, but let me just remind you for a second that the ideals don't always, things aren't always perfect the way that you want them to be. And how many of you guys know that this morning? Life gets messy. Life doesn't always pan out the way that you want it to be. And for him, he's saying, let me just put the bow on it for you to understand that like in the midst of the mess, God is faithful. In the midst of the mess, you have all these ideals, you have all these proper things that you want to follow and hold so closely to, but let me just invite you into this narrative to realize that life is messy, isn't clear-cut, isn't perfect, but in the midst of the mess, God is continually faithful. In the midst of the mess of life, God proves himself to be so very faithful. And if God's servants... Abraham and Joseph often encountered God outside this promised land. And who's to say that God's servant in Luke's day, in Stephen's day, couldn't work to bring this message to this nations instead of focusing in on the Holy Land? God was doing something. God's character was beginning to breach out of the geography that existed in this day and age because of and in light of what Jesus 
had done in the midst of humanity. But once again, we have this character, Stephen, this main character, the guy's really just trying to invite people into this perspective, right? He could have simply waved all the charges away, because that's not what he was saying, but he, he approaches it. Rather than being aggressive and aggressively defending himself and really trying to create a defense for God aggressively and on the spot, he, take, he takes a different approach. He could have defended himself, taken it personal, understood that his life was on the line, or he could have zoomed out a little bit and understood that in light of what God's doing, God cares about you. Although you are against me, let me zoom out for a second and understand how you actually play a part in this narrative. Let me zoom out for a second and understand for a second. Yeah, I could, I could, I could just keep you at the enemy label. I could. I could just keep you there and defend myself, understand you're an enemy, and I'm not. God loves me. But what does he do? He rather he takes an approach and he says, let me just tell you how you guys are a part of this too. Let me just paint a picture of how you guys can get in on this too. Because God loves you and God cares about you. In the same way God's been faithful to me, let me paint a picture of how God's been faithful to you through what Jesus has done. What does Stephen do? He goes for the big picture. What you need, he says, is to zoom out to see your purpose. Rather than telling you how bad you are, zooming into the fact that you're accusing me and I'm, you're, you're trying to murder me, which cats out of the bag, as we'll read on later on if you've read this chapter before, he does get murdered. He's killed. But right now, that's not, that's not what he's... He's zooming out so that he can zoom into the forgiveness of God. The fact that these are people that are disconnected with what God is doing, and he's desperately trying to invite them in and help them understand how they have a part to play. They have a difference in opinion, but he's desperately trying to figure out a way. Rather than making it about him and personal, he's desperately trying to find a way for them to understand they can get in on this grace. They can get on on this hope. They can get in on these things that God is offering them today. question for us this morning is like, how does, how does the Bible relate to us today, you know? This 2,000-year-old book for the New Testament, at least, here's, here's how it's going to relate to us today, how relevant this is for us today. This one question, how do we respond to people who are different than us? Do we zoom in or do we zoom out? Because here's the deal. These religious people, they were zooming in, pointing every little detail of religious things that was wrong with this man, Stephen, and Stephen's zooming out and saying, wait a second, you guys are coming against me. Let me zoom out and under- help you understand the perspective of God, how God sees the world. And although, yeah, in the moment, you're not really following him, you're not really seeking him, but let me, let me create a narrative with my life and help you understand how you can get in on this. For Christians in the room this morning, how do you respond to people who don't see Jesus yet? Do you zoom in? Is your posture one of zooming in, nitpicking, telling the world what's wrong with them, letting them know? Because when I slap across the face of the Bible, surely will make them want to follow this God. Do we zoom in just like the religious Jewish people the day that missed Jesus? Or do we understand that followers of Jesus are the ones that zoom out, that offer grace, that offer forgiveness, that actually look like this God who is sacrificed up on a cross? 
that looked at his very enemies and said and declared as he was being murdered, brutally murdered, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we're like, yeah, but that was, that's Jesus, Pastor. Then don't carry the title Christian because that represents little Jesuses. He's allowing us to be people that forgive in a world that doesn't forgive, that unites in a world that's divided. We have an opportunity to follow a God, be a movement in the midst of the world that we live in that's actually going to bring heaven to earth. That's going to allow the goodness of God to spread in a way that's actually going to be helpful and bring solutions to the world. But so often, we want to take the same approach as the Jews who miss Jesus and zoom in. And zoom into the little things. Zoom into the particular sin. Zoom into the very nitpicky things and saying, well, that's what's wrong with this person. And they need to change. Rather than zooming out and understanding, I see the big picture here. I see a hurting human. I see a person that has breath. I see a person who has life that has been gifted by God, which means that they matter. The Bible says that we've been created in the image of God. You know what that means? That we have the right to treat each and every human being with dignity and respect. And believe until they have their last breath, guess what? They're a candidate to receive what Jesus has given for each and every one of us. God wants to expand his message, and not in some, like, clicky, country club, Israelite-only type of way, and one that actually reaches everybody. Anybody and everybody. Anyone and everyone. I think about our goal as a church. That's who we're after. Because you know what? That's who Jesus was after. Anyone and everyone. Do we nitpick or do we zoom out? Understand a person's perspective. Take a humble position. Listen and understand that each and every person can join in with God in the renewal of all things, this side of heaven. God is inviting each and every one of us to a purpose and an adventure. But what's your approach? When you meet people that are different than you, what's your approach? Are you zooming in? Because that's so easy to do. Or are you zooming out and understanding where they fit into this grand scheme of thing called life that God has granted and gifted each and every one of us. To people that grew up in church, I'm not a person that grew up in church, which I think sometimes is helpful to different perspectives of people that did not. If you grew up in church this morning, come on, and you have people or you've seen people that maybe aren't people that follow Jesus yet, you can't expect them after a day of being around Christians or the church to understand every type of church tradition, church word, Christianese culture, Christian discipleship. There's this expectation that the church puts on people that they're going to become Christianese the next day. But how many of you guys know that actually mimics more of what the Jews were after rather than the heart of God? We can't expect people to understand and act Christianese the next day. It's a process. But if you grew up in church, you understand the lingo. You understand the this and that. You understand the liturgy. You understand it. And sometimes you take it for granted and don't understand a person who's far from God doesn't get that overnight. That stuff is not inserted into somebody's brain overnight. Oh, okay. You didn't attend church for 12 years. Well, guess what? When you say yes to Jesus, all that church culture is going to get inserted into your brain. Good luck. That's not how life works. So we got to remember, we got to start looking at lens through other people's eyes and understanding that God is desperately grabbing for people to get closer to him, to draw closer to him. This might be tough this morning, 
But here's what I love about Jesus. The blood of Jesus that covers you, maybe churchgoer, person that grew up in church, is the same blood of Jesus that somebody who is far from God their entire life who says, you know what? In my last waking moments, I'm going to say yes. That same blood, not like the blood with a little bit of not church stuff, the same blood covers that person. You know what that means? On judgment day, they're in the same place that you were churched or not because the blood of God is the great equalizer. But some of us carry this thought of like, well, they, they, didn't, they weren't faithful their entire lives. They're in God's kingdom now. Come on, somebody. Why are we celebrating the culture and the tradition when we need to be celebrating souls coming to know a God, lives being healed, hope being given? We're celebrating all the wrong things when we should be desperate for people to be covered by the blood of Jesus, not something we can attain to, but something only he can do for us. If it's about church culture, it's about us. But if it's about the blood of Jesus, come on, it's about his kingdom. It's about making a difference in this world. It's about the church not being a building, but a church being a culture of people that transform the world that we live in. We are done being churched. And we are all about being people that are about the cross and the resurrection and what Jesus can do for people. If you feel like you've earned something because you've been faithful to God your entire life and you need some more extra pats on the back, like, so sorry, because the greatest pat on the back is for you to look behind you and you reach heaven and the judgment seat of God who judges the entire world and to see if there's people actually behind you. People that you're bringing with you because you actually made a difference in the world that God has designed and cared for and loves so much. But we want to zoom in and we want to nitpick on things that don't matter when God is doing something so amazing in this world today. What's your approach? What's your perspective? What do you do? How do you treat those who are different than you? Do we just do what everybody else is doing? Do we join in with the disunity? Do we join in with the hate? Do you join in with what everybody else is doing? Or do you understand that God has given us a way to live that actually breaks chains, that actually allows people to experience breakthrough in their life? that actually allows a person's life to be resurrected in a way that's not humanly possible on our own, but partnered with God and his power. Man, it's limitless. But that's how great God's love is for us. That's how great his grace is. That's the reason he died for us. Because there's nothing we can do to earn it. But I'll tell you what, if you're a person that you've earned it, it's time to get back on board maybe this morning with what God's up to. Because he's moving. He's doing things in this world. He's moving in the moments of today, in the history of today, in the same way from Genesis to Revelation, we see God consistently, his character never changes, but he moves in the midst of humanity, and he forgives. And we get to be a part of this culmination in the time that we live in on earth, where we get to partake of what Jesus has done for us, and we get to be very messengers to reflect and invite others to come, come, Come with us and join in with what God is doing. Amen.